Welcome to Business Masters, the podcast that gives you direct access to world-leading experts on key business issues. To be the first to know about future shows and to access even more exclusive content, visit businessblueprint.com and subscribe today. Hello, it's Dale Beaumont here, founder of Business Blueprint, and welcome to another Business Masters podcast. Today, I'm talking with business expansion expert, David Thomas, and our topic is how to grow your business globally. David, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Dale. Nice to be on. So why do you think it's important for business owners to start to think global? Well, Australia has had a 20-year um, growth patch. You know, we, we've had you know, almost 20 years of uninterrupted growth. And I think we're reaching the end of that cycle now. We have a very high dollar. Um, companies are now reaching the, you know, the, the full extent of their potential here. And, and whilst, of course, there's still uh, plenty of growth opportunities, as, as you know, but I do think it's, it's time for us to start engaging in the Asian century. You know, we are part of the Asia-Pacific region. I think it's time for us to, uh, to, to move, to start looking to engage in other parts of the world. Okay. And at what sort of stage of a business do you think people should start to think uh, globally? Should it be from, from day one when they open their doors or only after they've got an established business with a consistent kind of revenue base? Well, you do hear companies that seek to have a global business from day one, but I have to say that I think you do need an established business model and system in place uh, and some kind of track record, uh, not to mention some you know, profit and buffer, you know, capital buffer behind you that can propel you out of Australia. You know, doing business overseas uh, takes time, it takes patience, it, it requires new relationships to be established. I find that many companies give up because it takes longer than they expect and they run out of money. So I do think you do have to have an established model. You do need some consistency and you need a platform from which you can start uh, thinking globally. Now, a lot's been said about the BRIC countries, B-R-I-C. Can you bring everyone up to speed with what are these countries and why have they been singled out you know, with the other you know, 100 and whatever other countries there are in the world? Well, these are the big four emerging markets, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. This BRIC acronym was coined in 2001 uh, by a chap in London called Jim O'Neill, who was the chief economist of Goldman Sachs. And he, he could see the future in terms of these big four countries. They're big, rapidly industrializing countries, and they have an abundance of land, people, and capital. So they are the big four, the BRICs. And they're all quite different in that there's no real correlation between them. You know, China and India, completely different sorts of markets governed by very different drivers. So it's not necessarily right to try and do business with all four, but these are the big four emerging economic engines of the future. And I think all Australian companies should be looking to engage with at least one of them. And I'm also now hearing about MIST as well, which I believe is Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea, and Turkey. Why are these countries also now starting to gain some momentum? Well, because um, in this sort of fast-moving media world, we already got bored of BRIC. So uh, Jim O'Neill was then asked to come up with the next four. Um, and this was his acronym as well, MIST, Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea, and Turkey, another group of emerging countries that sit below the BRICs in terms of their size and in terms of their, uh, their, their access to capital, population and land. But he regards them as being the next big four to look out for. In my view, we, we haven't yet scratched the surface of the opportunity in the BRICs. So I wouldn't be thinking too much about the myths right now. 
Okay, let's shift back to Asia. Asia. Uh, we said earlier that this is going to be the Asian century. Are we just should we just really be focusing on China solely, or should we be looking at the region as a whole and incorporating, you know, all the other countries in the Asian market as well? Well, it's absolutely right that we should be talking about the Asian century. You know, we've been in the Asian century now for at least ten years, um, and we're now starting to talk about it. So that's good. Uh, China is definitely the economic engine of Asia at the moment. It, 20 years ago it was Japan. Uh, as we all know, Japan hit the wall in 1991 and has been you know, only a slow growth story since then. Um, China now is the big country in Asia and it is driving growth across the Asian region. So many countries like Vietnam, like the Philippines, Indonesia, they're all benefiting from you know, the significant growth coming out of China. Um, I do think that we should be spending a lot of time in China right now, not just in the first tier cities of Shanghai and Beijing where everybody goes, but in some of the second and third tier cities as well where we're seeing double digit growth uh, and a lot more resilience perhaps than uh, we realize reading the media um, here in Australia. So I think this is a 20 to 30 year story. China is going to be the, the, the growth uh, story and we all need to be part of that. And do you want to maybe mention some of those other cities in China that we should be starting to learn the names of because we're going to be hearing more about them in the future? Yes, we'll take a city like Chongqing, um, people. It's, it's in western or inner western China. It's a munis municipality of Beijing, so it reports directly to uh, the, the central government in Beijing. It, it's a major city. It's actually the sister city of Brisbane, not something that we generally talk about much here. Um, but with 30 million people, you know, it's, it's, it's a population a lot bigger than Australia and it's a city that very few people have been to. I was there last year and we met the deputy mayor of Chongqing. He was very keen to see more Australian companies um, in Chongqing uh, but there are others as well like Chengdu. Chengdu, I, I actually met the mayor of, of Chengdu and he's a he's an Australian wine fanatic and spent most of the time talking to me about the curious game of cricket that we play because he went there with Kevin Rudd a few years ago to watch a test match. Now Chengdu is another city of about 20 odd million people, the whole, you know, the size of the whole of Australia. Um, it's part of Sichuan province and it's a very fast uh, growing city. And there are others too, like Wuhan, Xi'an, sorry, uh, Changsha, another interesting uh, part of Western China, where I think rather than the well worn path to Shanghai and Beijing, we now just need to start looking at these, these uh, inner west second tier cities. Wow, this is very exciting. Uh, now, tell me, some people, if you, you know, listen to different parts of the media, some people say that, look, China's, uh, you know, it's already overcooked and it's going to be slowing down. Some people say it's even heading for a recession. Then there are other people that say well, China's only just getting started. There's still another, at least another 20 or 30 years of, of our growth. Uh, what are your, your thoughts? What are the numbers telling you? China's definitely slowing down and it's quite natural that it should slow down. And in fact, in talking about a slowdown, the current five-year plan, and as you know, China every five years goes through this planning process and actually sets some milestones and achievements for the future. In this five-year plan, they predicted economic growth at 7.5% a year, which is pretty much what it is today. And yet in the media, all we're hearing about is that China's growth has slowed from 10 point something to 9 to 8 and now at 7 and is almost a disaster. 
as I said, Chongqing in Western China um, is growing at about 18 to 20 percent a year. So this 7.5 percent number, which represents the whole of China, is a bit misleading because it's a, like Australia, a bit of a patchwork economy. There are parts of China growing at 20 percent. There are other parts growing at five. So the 7.5 percent number that we focus on is a bit misleading. Um, but so my, my thoughts are that the China growth story has another 30 to 50 years to run. And we need to be on board. And whilst there are people out there saying that there's, there are disasters in the pipeline, there's, there's a big concern at the moment about some of China's debt problems. And I appreciate that you know, nothing goes up in a straight line forever. Um, but the long-term trend and the long-term opportunity is still there. And I was in Shanghai last week, and despite all this talk of debt bubbles and, uh, and slowing growth, there's certainly no sign of any slowing on the ground in China, let me tell you. So what I'd like to do now is for you to share with us maybe a few success stories as someone for listening to this, either from Australia or from New Zealand or from the UK or, or America. Uh, can you share um, some examples of businesses that have, have gone into China and have, uh, have prospered? Yeah, I've, uh, I've recently done some work for a group called APIR Systems. It's an Australian-based um, financial services technology group. They provide coding to all the Australian managed funds, and they asked me to help them develop their business into Asia. I, I took them up to Hong Kong for the first time about two years ago. Two years later, the founders now moved to Hong Kong from Canberra. Uh, he now has an Asia business. Uh, they're starting to earn some, some serious revenue out of the Hong Kong market. And now they're moving into other parts of Asia like Malaysia, Singapore and others. And they've used the Hong Kong uh, model as a sort of uh, path to a developing a growth platform there. So that, that's a good example of a services business, uh, albeit with technology attached, um, from Australia, which is now starting to have some success in, in Hong Kong and in the Asian region. Um, there are, of course, plenty of, plenty of others. Fantastic. If you have time, I'd love to hear maybe one or two other success stories. These are fascinating. Of architects. Um, in fact, Australia has a lot to offer in the design and, and architectural space. Mm. You know, very good at that. Um, a good friend of mine, John Billman, who runs PTW, one of uh, Australia's um, well-known architect firms, um, he was the guy who won the global tender to design the water cube uh, or the aquatic centre in Beijing for the Beijing Olympics. And um, so that that water cube, I'm sure you've seen it. That blue, you know, it's rather building has been a kind of beacon of Australian design excellence in China um, and a great example of how a services business that basically sells design and intelligence and uh, uh, the ability to do things slightly differently has started to get great success in, in, a, in a very difficult market like China and in fact just earlier this year PTW was bought by a Chinese firm and is now a sort of China-Australia firm uh, basically with, with uh, Chinese growth and local connections and Australian innovation and design. Another great. Fantastic. Now, what about if you're in the, a products-based business? You know, clearly China is the one that makes most of most of the products in the world. So, but what what type of uh, products do well there? I know someone that has uh, wine um, and that also exports quite a lot of Australian wine to China. But what are some other things that Chinese people are looking to consume um, that we can provide? You know, apart from uh, you know tables, chairs, and handbags. 
Yes, well, China's uh, changing. You know, this this emerging middle class that's growing. Their their diets are changing. They're now starting to eat, you know, beef and pork and chicken, and uh, they're moving away from some of the, you know, staple diets. They're now drinking wine. They 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 like olive oil. Um, they like uh, fruit. You know, I think there's a big opportunity for the citrus industry in China. Um, one thing I I probably should say though is that you'll never you'll never be able to compete in China on price. So if it's all about Getting in there with a low price model and uh, marketing it to the masses, it's going to be a very difficult and long road for most people. Where I see the opportunity is in the premium space, and wine is a great example of that. I've been to many restaurants with Chinese entrepreneurs and, and rich people who order the most expensive bottle of wine on the menu, irrespective of what the wine is, because it's not about price, it's about showing people that they can afford it. Uh, so I hear, for example, I was speaking recently at a conference where I heard in our fruit industry that people regard uh, doing business in China as almost impossible because of the high Aussie dollar and the fact that we can't get a price in there that's competitive. But I just don't agree with that. I think at the premium market, where we're selling coffee like Gloria Jeans, when we're selling juice like Boost Juice, who are, who are having some success in Shanghai, you know, where we're selling high quality wine to the premium market where price I don't think is an issue and it's all about brand and quality and nutritional value uh, and sustainability, I think Australia has an enormous amount to offer. And how, do, how would someone go about the expansion sort of uh, process with, with literally dozens of cities that are, you know, with, you know, tens of millions of people? You mentioned the path of starting in Hong Kong, maybe tweaking the model, getting it right and expanding into one city at a time. You've mentioned the other cities like Beijing, Shanghai. Should we be starting there or possibly starting somewhere in maybe Singapore or Kuala Lumpur perhaps and uh, and then making sure our model's right in a smaller market before then going into mainland China. Yes, all products are different and markets are different. And when we talk about Asia, let's not forget, it's like Europe. You know, the differences between Hong Kong and Singapore and Taiwan and Vietnam and the Philippines and Indonesia, these are very different markets with different characteristics and different opportunities. So we can't lump them all together um, and talk about an Asia strategy. We have to be very country specific because of all the all the differences and variances that exist. So um, the starting point, of course, has to be around research, and you have to uh, understand, you know, which parts of the which parts of Asia are going to be suitable for your product, uh, what sort of customers are, are there, what kind of distributors, what kind of channels there are to get into the market, uh, what some of the barriers and com competition looks like. I mean, clearly, you have to do your research, um, and that's clearly the first part of it. The second is then you need to build relationships on the ground. Asia is a very uh, relationship-based environment. They're much more focused on building trusted relationships with people they like doing business with rather than simply going after the best product or the best opportunity. So, so the research and relationships come first. Once, I th once you've got those, those things in place, um, then I think you can start moving in and doing things. But you, you have to move slowly. Okay, and I'm guessing that there are failure rates. It's not just um, the streets aren't paved in gold. So, eh, you know, what are some of the the ways in which people come unstuck when they do look at uh, expansion globally? And let's uh, also talk about China as well. Well, and it's the same across the whole of Asia. Um, people come unstuck because they give up too quickly. They they hit rock bottom, 
and they find they can't get out of that um, and they give up. And there's so many examples of that. I've taken so many Australian companies to places like China. They've had some initial success. Uh, it's all gone swimmingly well for a bit. Then it's hit the brick wall. And after a period, they've given up. And uh, I find that sad because they've already made the investment. They've already actually done the difficult thing, which is to turn up in the first place. Uh, but they've, been, um, they've found themselves disappointed. We have a saying in Asia that you should always double your budget and halve your expectations. And uh, that's unfortunately the, the, the truth. The, you know, these things take time. Um, and you, and I, I find that most people... Um, uh, you know, where, where there's been failure is probably because they haven't really estimated the time and effort and patience that they're going to need to be successful. And what about people that are selling, uh, I suppose, information services such as maybe consultants perhaps or people that, uh, you know, have expertise? How would they go about expanding, you know, into uh, foreign markets? Obviously, they you know, need a translator, but are they looking for expertise in the area of business development perhaps or personal growth or anyone else that's in a coaching or, or um, uh, speaking sort of capacity? I think that's a big growth area. Um, uh, I, I've, I often say that, that Asia and China in particular has focused on building the hardware that's the you know the infrastructure, the roads, the rails, the hotels, uh, the the um, you know the, the the hardware, but they haven't yet got the software. So that skills, the training, the you know all that sort of soft soft those soft skills that you need, and I think they're starting to recognise that, particularly in big organisations who are now looking to go global themselves. Uh, we're seeing lots of examples now of Asian companies who are trying to build a global business, and of course that's difficult for them because in the same way that we have cross-cultural challenges doing business there, they have the same challenges coming this way in a different way. So what they need is access to training, to coaching, to lead leadership development, uh, to management techniques, all the sort of things that we start taking for granted, they actually have to learn from scratch. I think that's a big growth opportunity for all the sorts of people you mentioned. Mm. And let's now reverse the conversation. Like you've mentioned, there are a lot of Chinese businesses that are looking to come to Australia and New Zealand and the UK and America. So it's not about necessarily going there. What other opportunities exist by their expansion uh, globally? And we've spoken uh, before about the, um, the 888 visa as well in Australia. And I imagine other things similar will be rolled out around the globe. Tell us about those opportunities for entrepreneurs locally that may never have an ambition to, to take their business global. Well, that's been the biggest change in my business in the last five years, perhaps, which, which is that whereas I've always been focused on outbound, that's taking Australian companies offshore, I'm now more and more focused on inbound, not just inbound in terms of business, but inbound in terms of investment as well. So we're starting to see very rich entrepreneurs coming out of Asia, particularly out of China, looking to invest and do business in a country like Australia. They've got uh, very deep pockets. They can invest you know, significant amounts. There are now many different channels and ways for them to do that, including this new significant investment visa that you mentioned. Um, so we're starting to see Australian companies looking to raise money from uh, Chinese investors. And with that money, it gives them the capital base uh, in from which they start to expand and export their capability to, to overseas markets. And of course, then they have a partner, an investment partner, who can help them do that. So I think there is a, a, a great opportunity in that space. We are seeing a, lot, a big wave of investment coming this way. And I think we can all tap into that. 
Fantastic. Um, and if you, you could also tell us a bit about the tours that you run as well. I know you've taken lots of groups of entrepreneurs to, to China and to India and to, to Russia and also Brazil as well. Uh, what, um, kind of, you know, what happens on some of these tours and what, what, um, what are some of the, the things that you help entrepreneurs to do or what should we be doing if we visit these countries to kind of start that research as you talk about and start to build those relationships? Well, it's, it's important to have a platform. It's very hard to go around these countries on your own um, and trying to find your way around and who, who to meet and that, where to go. So building a platform is a great way to do that. And, and last week I was in China chairing something called Australia-China Business Week where we had 50 Australian companies in Shanghai for three days meeting with potential business partners and investors. And we had about 100 locals uh, matching up with our 50 Australian companies and, and over that little you know, three-day period. I think that's a great way to get started because you learn a lot about the environment, you meet a lot of people, and you have a few people around, like me and others, who can provide some expert guidance and support. Um, I, I'd, I would always look for a way to do it in that kind of way. Of course, there are other ways like trade shows and study tours and missions and delegations where you can be part of a group and you're not doing it all on your own. Okay, just to finish up, what can we be doing in our business right here, right now in order to prepare for the future and to make sure that when we're ready that we can capitalize on some of these new opportunities? Well, here's a good start, I think, is to, is to get, onto your, get onto the internet and to start looking at the demand uh, for your service or your product in a country like, say, China. And I say China because it is the biggest, it is the big market, it's the one on our doorstep and it's the one with whom we have a very strong relationship. You only have to pick up a paper every day and you can see the importance that the Australian government is placing on China and the kind of support that would be around you if you ended up doing business there. So I think China is a great place to start for Australian companies today. That will change in the future but right now it's I think the right time and the right place. So if I, if I were you, I would think about your product service capability. Capability, I would look at the China market and look at the, start looking at the demand for your product. I would hire a Chinese intern. Now, there are 150,000 Chinese students in Australian universities today. I think if I, if I was a small business owner, I would hire one of them as my intern because you would get a very you know well-educated, motivated person working in your office who would work extremely hard. But they're bilingual, they're multicultural, they can read Chinese websites and they probably have a range of connections in China as well that could help you. I would get one of those into your business. You don't have to pay them very much. They're looking for work experience and opportunity. Uh, give them the chance to learn a bit about your business and at the same time challenge them to help you think about how your business could succeed in China. I think that's where I would start. Fantastic. You've given us some great tips. Um, we're almost out of time. So I probably will wrap this interview up now. David Thomas, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate chatting. My pleasure, Dale. Look forward to seeing you. For more information about David Thomas, please visit thinkglobal.com.au. Thanks for listening to another Business Masters podcast. To access more great content or to download your free business plan template, visit businessblueprint.com.